I'm going to read two texts to open up with today. Exodus 20, verse 26, out of the HCSB. It says, You must not go up to my altar on steps, so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. And then Genesis 3, verse 21, New King James Version, also for Adam and his wife, Yahweh Elohim made tunics of skin and clothed them. Last week, our study took us to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 26, and it brought us to a law where the men of Israel were to take precaution to cover their nakedness in public. I talked about modesty and outward appearance and laid some groundwork. One thing I'd like you to remember, I think it's good to remember that the message of modesty and outward appearance is about honor and dignity and privacy. I then took us back further before Exodus to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, chapters 2 and 3, where we find the foundation for modesty. Before sin entered, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were naked and they were unashamed in a holy way. They were in paradise, the Garden of Eden. After they disobeyed Yahweh's command, the realization of their nakedness came upon them and they made loincloths. They sewed them together out of fig leaves to cover their midsection. That was man's attempt at covering outward nakedness. But it was not a sufficient covering. We read later in Genesis 3 verse 21 that Yahweh made or appointed or instituted tunics to appropriately cover the nakedness of man and woman. I've written pretty much extensively on this subject and I've got a slew of Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias that I could have quoted from but you can go and read that study if you'd like to read all of the dictionaries I've compiled on this subject. I thought I would read one today. This is from the Holman Bible Dictionary. This is under the heading Clothing Styles. Pretty much every dictionary of the Bible says basically the same thing, maybe a little bit different flavor. The Bible gives only general descriptions of the types of garments worn in biblical times. Egyptian, Assyrian, Roman, and Hittite monuments provide extensive pictorial evidence of dress in the ancient world. The need for clothing derives its origin from the shame of nakedness experienced by Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3, 7 through 8. God's provision for his people is reflected in the animal skin garments given in response to human need. Men and women wore tunics made of linen or wool hanging from the neck to the knees or the ankles. The Bani Hassan tablu from the tomb of Khnum Hotep in Egypt depicts tunics worn by Semitic peoples as having diverse patterns and colors. End of that quote. As you read throughout Scripture, the whole Bible, the tunic was not the only garment that was worn by men and women. We read about outer coats or outer sashes. We read about breeches. We read about head coverings, belts, things of that nature. A variety of clothing was worn by Hebrew men and women. A lot of it was for decoration as well. Um, and all of that was acceptable and fine, but the main issue, according to Genesis 3, is that the garment that Yahweh gave to Adam and Eve is not to be removed. It is put there to cover nakedness sufficiently. That is, the tunic. So long as the tunic is on, other clothing may be worn underneath or over top for practical reasons or even for style desires. I believe everyone knows that the tunic was the basic everyday garment of both Hebrew men and women. I just don't think that most people have stopped long enough to think about the implications of this. If you've ever been to a play at a church or 
a scene depicting something that happened um, anciently in ancient Bible times at a drama theater. You see how the men and women are dressed and you can tell them apart as masculine and feminine, as male and female, but their garments are basically the same, tunics or robes. I've recently, over the last couple of years, enjoyed watching a TV series called The Chosen. The Chosen is a series that depicts the adult life of the Messiah in his times in his ministry. I would highly encourage anybody to watch it. There's been a lot that's been said about it, both pro and con, among Christians and among Messianic people. Obviously, as with any show about the Bible, I don't agree with every stylistic liberty that is taken in the show to recount Bible history. But for the most part, I think they're doing the best that they can do to make it feel as authentic as possible. And they've actually brought out a couple of points that I've never seen or heard brought out before in a show about the Bible. Well, one of the ways that they make this authentic is through dress. And the Messiah and all of his disciples are dressed in tunics. The man that plays the Messiah, Yeshua, he wears this basic tan tunic with tassels at the four corners. It has longer sleeves. It reaches to the knees. No pants underneath. And that's probably what our Messiah walked around in on a day-to-day -day basis. He may have only had one tunic in general. Maybe an outer coat later on. Uh, John the baptizer, when he was preaching, he said, if you have two tunics, give one away to somebody that has none. <laughs> so a lot of people only had one tunic at, at that time. That's a lot different than us. We open up our wardrobe. Notice we call it a wardrobe. It's a ward where we keep our robes. We open that up and we see all this clothes that we got. And then we look at it and still sometimes we think, what am I going to wear? I ain't got nothing to wear. <laughs> but we got this big closet full of clothes. That wasn't necessarily the case for Hebrews in the first century. Well, no one has a problem with this until somebody like me comes along, knocks on the door, and makes a suggestion that, hey, why aren't we still wearing tunics for modesty now? If they wore them for modesty back then, if they were given by Yahweh and appointed back then, why aren't we not wearing them now? And then when I make that suggestion... Everybody gives the buts and the ands and the ifs and all that, you know, the objections. I heard an objection years ago when I first started studying this subject back in 2004, 2003, 2004. And the objection I heard was that if we use Genesis 3.21 as the foundation text for this teaching, then we are going to have to say that not only is a tunic required to be worn, but that a leather tunic is required because the text says that Yahweh made Adam and Eve tunics of skin, meaning of animal skin. And the problem with this objection is that it doesn't take into account all of Scripture. We want to make sure when we study the Bible, we study Scripture primarily, or some people say Scripture alone, but not just Scripture alone, but all of Scripture. We want to take everything that Scripture says into account. So as we continue to read from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus and then we get all the way to Revelation, what we see is other pieces or items of clothing that are acceptable over the tunic or under the tunic. And then we also see that Hebrew men and women wore tunics made of a variety of different materials, some of which are linen, cotton, wool, or even silk. You can see I have a list of scriptures on the board here that talk about other clothing materials for the servants of Yahweh that serve the Creator. The key here is that the basic garment did not change. A tunic is still a tunic whether it's made from animal skin or sheep wool or whether it's spun and sewed from cotton or linen. 
And all you have to do nowadays is you probably have a Bible app on your phone and you can go to the search engine and punch in linen or wool and it'll pull up all the places where you can look up more scriptures than even the ones I've got on the screen. So I don't think that's a good objection. Another objection or argument that I've heard where people try to weasel out of wearing the tunic because it's not a very popular teaching. <laughs> but then another objection I've heard is that, Matthew, do you expect everyone to go back to primitive times? If you're going to say that we have to go back to primitive times and wear tunics, then maybe we need to just wear sandals or ride camels or draw water manually from a well. Well, I think this argument is fallacious because it thinks that I'm presenting or the message is presenting a back-to-ancient-culture teaching. But that's not what I'm teaching. I'm not teaching this message because I think that we have to go back to old times like maybe the Amish and Mennonite groups say where you can't have certain things because that's just not how it was back in granddaddy or great-granddaddy's time. I'm not saying that. So the argument from Genesis 3.21 is not based on we cannot advance in technology or practice. Style changes are perfectly fine. Technology is fine. Technology can be wonderful. It can be great. We can use it for the good. I consider myself pretty stylish in some of my tunics. Some people might disagree with that. <laughs> I've had people stop me in the mall asking me where I got it. They want to get one like it. I said, this is one of a kind. <laughs> I can't offer you another one. Genesis 3.21 is a modesty argument. It's a type argument. It's not an ancient culture argument. See? It's not an argument saying we have to dress like ancient Hebrews because we want to get away from modern things. It's an argument saying we need to dress like this because this is Yahweh's appointed garment for modesty. When we get from Genesis to Revelation, thousands of years later, we still see tunics and robes being worn by both men and women all the way to the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, even if we fast forward from there to the Protestant Reformation with men like John Wycliffe or John Calvin, and I could name and show paintings or drawings of many of the other men and women, they all still wore tunics or robes up to the 1500s and even into the 1600s. John Wycliffe, that you see there at the picture on the left with the long white beard. Most of the reformers had beards too, by the way. Well, he was one of the guys that was a spearhead behind um, our English Bible translation. We mentioned William Tyndale a lot in the 1500s, but Wycliffe came before him in the 1300s. And Wycliffe kind of started getting away from some of the man-made doctrines in Roman Catholicism and started reforming at that time. And John Wycliffe, he, he wore a robe. He wore a tunic. That's what he wore. John Calvin, too, there on the right, wore one. Martin Luther, William Tyndale, Ulrich Zwingli, they all wore tunics or robes back then, and most of them uh, had beards. When you first start meditating on all of this, it sounds a bit strange because in our Western culture mindset from the early 19 to mid-1900s, early to mid-20th century, we kind of think that pants defines what a man is supposed to wear and a dress defines what a woman is supposed to wear. Kind of like the cleavers. Anybody watch Leave it to Beaver? I watched Leave it to Beaver growing up. Warden June Cleaver. That's the quintessential couple. We've got to look like the cleavers. 
We hear a word like skirt mentioned in the context of clothing and we automatically think woman's garment, woman's apparel. But for example, in the King James Version, the word skirt is used about 12 times in the Old Testament and every single time it's used is talking about a man's skirt, not a woman's. One example is where Ruth was quietly, she was secretly laying at the feet of Boaz and she woke him up and they had some discussion there and in Ruth chapter 3 verse 9 when he realizes it, Ruth looks at Boaz and says, I am Ruth thine handmaid, spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid for thou art a near kinsman. So the skirt here was pertaining to the kinsman, Boaz. He's the one that had a skirt and it was large enough to be spread over Ruth. I could go through all of these, but I, I won't. You can look them up in your study time. But one more is Zechariah 8.23 where it says, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, once again, KJV, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that Elohim is with you. I think that's a Messianic prophecy myself. I think the Jew there is the Messiah. But notice the skirt of him, not her, the skirt of him that is a Jew. Some Bibles say robe or, or him, H-E-M, here. And there are cases in the Bible where skirt is mentioned and it's talking about the border of one's tunic or the hem of one's robe. But the point here is that we generally associate the word skirt with a female but the King James Version associates the word skirt with a man, not with a woman. So why is it that we think that skirts are for women and pants are for men? Why is it that the bathroom door signs have one stick figure in what looks like a dress to your right and the other stick figure looks like it's wearing nothing? I know we think, well, it's got pants on, but look at it. It looks like it don't have anything on. Well, the reason that we consider this to be a decisive factor for men and women is not because of the Bible. It's not because of ancient culture. It's simply because of modern Western culture from the 17 to 1900s. That's why we think the way that we do. If the Messiah or one of his disciples walked up to these signs right here without the letters up underneath them, he would probably go into the one on the right because that's what he would be wearing, a tunic, something like that. He'd think, I'm not going into the one on the left. Maybe they're naked in that room. I'm going to go to the one on the right where they got clothes on. <laughs> so we assign pants to men and skirts to women because of modern Western culture. We do not get it from Hebrew culture. And remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible wasn't written to Matthew Jansen. The Bible was written to ancient Hebrews, specifically the Older Testament, in the Hebrew language. And so we need to understand it in the culture and language in which it was written. Some of us grew up in Pentecostal churches like myself or fundamental Baptist-type churches. And we heard Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, pounded from the pulpit. And most of the time it was pounded and the message that came behind it was we've got to keep the women from wearing pants. That was the message behind it. Now, I thought that was kind of awkward because when I started studying the Torah and I came out of the Pentecostal church, I don't consider myself Pentecostal anymore. I guess maybe in one way I do keep Pentecost, the second of the three major feasts, but I don't consider myself Pentecostal, right? 
But I thought it was kind of odd that they would quote Deuteronomy 22 and 5 because when I came out of that church and I was having discussions with the elders there, they were telling me the law was done away with. We didn't need to worry about the law. But bless God, we're going to quote Deuteronomy 22 and 5. It's kind of like they say, bless God, we're going to keep the tithe law. We don't worry about the other ones, but we're going to keep the tithe and we want to keep the women from wearing pants. So we're going to quote Deuteronomy 22 and 5 out of context. We're going to apply it to modern 20th century culture. And we're going to say that if a woman puts on a pair of pants, it's an abomination to God. I heard a preacher say that one time. Well, in the King James Version, it says here, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto Yahweh thy Elohim, or the Lord thy God, KJV. So, there it is, they'd say. Don't wear pants, women. Shut the Bible. Walk off. <laughs> it's not good Bible study. It's not good Bible study. That verse doesn't say anything about a pair of pants. And here is an excellent example of how not to read the Bible. That will be a good way to title this lesson, How Not to Read the Bible. When we try to take our modern day mindset and transfer it back to the Bible, which was written to Hebrew culture in Hebrew language, we will often get ourselves in trouble, interpretive-wise. See, when Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 was first given... It was given to Hebrew men and women. And both Hebrew men and women wore the same basic clothes. So Moshe and his wife Zipporah were standing there in tunics when Deuteronomy 22 and 5 was given. Maybe Moshe's tunic had stripes. Maybe Zipporah's had flower patterns. I don't know. We're not told. But they were standing there basically in the same type of garment. The point is, is that whatever colors, patterns, or style they had on, the same basic garment, the katanath, Genesis 3.21, the tunic, the robe. Could they have been wearing something like pants underneath their tunics? They could have. We're not told. They could have. We're not told in many of the texts. Some of them we are. Some of them we're not. But I'm sure other items of clothing were worn for protective and practical reasons. Once again, it doesn't mean you can only wear the tunic. You can wear something over top, underneath, on your feet, on your hands, in your hair. That's fine as long as the tunic stays on. Uh, for example, we're not told anything about sandals in Genesis 3.21. just mentions the tunic, just the katana, nothing about sandals. But we know that, for instance, we know Moshe wore sandals because when he spoke with Yahweh through the, the burning bush that was burning but did not consume, Yahweh told him, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. So that means he had to wear sandals. Why did he wear sandals? Probably for practical reasons. Probably not for style reasons like people wear them today, but for practical reasons because it's easier to walk with something on the bottom of your feet. That's why we wear shoes and we like to keep them comfortable. So the same thing goes for pants. Pants would have been very practical to protect the legs while working. I can't imagine being out there pumping a septic tank wearing my tunic with no pants on and the hose brush up against my leg. I don't want that. I don't even wear shorts when I'm out pumping septic tanks. So make sure to wear long pants. Pants are very practical while working. And they're also practical for warmth in the cold weather. As a matter of fact, when I was growing up as a kid, I remember now that we'd have some functions and there were certain women in the church that would only wear dresses or skirts. But if we had a function and it was outdoors in the fall or winter, you'd often see jogging pants being worn up under their dress or their skirt. And that was fine. And they recognized that was fine. If Deuteronomy 22 and 5 is strictly against a woman wearing a pair of pants, then they shouldn't even be worn up under a skirt if that's how you're going to interpret that verse. 
or maybe even pantyhose. I don't think that's what the verse is talking about at all. All some churches use is Deuteronomy 22 and 5. They apply it in a modern mindset, and it just does not work. When we read it in light of Hebrew culture and Hebrew language, that interpretation doesn't work. So we need to look elsewhere. We need to say, what is it talking about? We know that's not right. What is it saying? Well, one thing that we need to notice here, among others, is the Hebrew word for man in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. It's used twice. Now, we will not get this from the English because we just read the word man twice here. But behind one English word, man, can stand various Hebrew words. And it's significant which Hebrew word is used. The English word man is used about 81 times in the book of Deuteronomy. But there are only two times in Deuteronomy where the word man is based on the Hebrew word geber. And you know what two times that is? Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5. So out of the 81 uses of man, only two are geber. It's the only two times geber is used in the whole book of Deuteronomy. And it's right here twice in one verse. I think that's significant. I think it's significant that Ish isn't used, Adam isn't used, Enosh isn't used. All the other 79 times in Deuteronomy used these Hebrew words. Ish, Adam, Ebion, Ibri, Asher, Chalal, Nafal, Ayin, Bakur, Seba. Sound like I'm talking in tongues. <laughs> I guess I am talking in tongues. The Hebrew tongue, right? Granted, some of these words that I just said describe actions associated with a man. For example, one place in Deuteronomy uses the word nafal. N-A-P-H-A-L is transliteration. Nafal. The word means to fall down. And the translation gloss is if a man falls down. It's from the Hebrew word nafal. So some of these words are associated with man, not particularly mean man. But the point still stands that in all of these cases, only two times the word geber is used for man. Both are in Deuteronomy 22 and 5. I think that's significant. As a matter of fact, in this very chapter, if we just go a few verses down to Deuteronomy 22 verse 13, the word man is there again, but it's not geber. It is the word ish, which is a much more common word for man. It's the same word used in Genesis 2 where it talks about man and one man, Ish, Isha. Okay. Deuteronomy 22, 13 says, If a man takes a wife, and Ish, a man. The Hebrew word Geber is defined by Strong's Concordance. It's Hebrew number 1397. It's defined by Strong's as properly a valiant man or warrior. Generally a person simply. It's defined by Brown, Drivers, and Briggs, Hebrew lexicon to the left on the screen as a man, strong man, warrior, emphasizing strength or ability to fight. Now, if you notice, both of these lexicons refer you back to number 1396. These are 1397. They refer you back to 1396, and 1396 is Gabar. And Gabar has the meaning of to be strong, to prevail, or even to act insolently, which is kind of to be brash or maybe even rude or harsh at times. Because of this word being used in this text, there have been 
commentators throughout history that have gotten the meaning from this text that it's referring to a woman putting on like the battle garments of a soldier or a warrior. Let me give you an example from an old Methodist commentator. In my opinion, one of the best commentators to ever live on the Bible. His name is Adam Clark. He was a Methodist. I believe Yahweh loves some Methodists. He says in part here in his commentary on Deuteronomy 22 and 5, this isn't the whole thing, but this is in part, quote, It is very probable that armor here is intended, especially as we know that in the worship of Venus, to which that of Astarte or Ashtaroth among the Canaanites bore a striking resemblance, the women were accustomed to appear in armor before her. It certainly cannot mean a simple change in dress, whereby the men might pass for women and vice versa, this would have been impossible in those countries where the dress of the sexes had but little to distinguish it and where every man wore a long beard. End of quote. So this is one possibility to interpret this text that a man or a woman shouldn't appear in battle armor or as a warrior in worship to another deity. That's a possibility, but that interpretive method doesn't really deal with the part in the verse where the man is told not to put on the woman's garment. Uh, let's continue here. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, he comments on this verse in Antiquities 4.8.43. Josephus says one sentence. He says, Take care, especially in your battles, that no woman use the habit of a man, nor man the garment of a woman. End of that quote. So Josephus kind of lines it up with battle garments as well. Soldiers, warriors, gebers, strength, ability to fight. So it could be understood that for a man to wear the woman's garment means he stayed home from battle or he stopped providing for the family, taking on the role or the place of the woman. But notice carefully that Josephus does not limit this command to war or battle. He says, take care, especially in your battles, that no woman used the habit of a man, nor man the garment of a woman. That shows that he viewed this as a general law to always be kept, but especially at wartime or especially in your battles. My view on Deuteronomy 22 and 5, at least where I'm at right now, doesn't mean that I won't advance or change in the future. But where I'm at right now is that Deuteronomy 22 and 5 is about role changes. It's about a role change or a purposeful attempt at switching one's look to be like the opposite sex. The contemporary English version, I think it gets the meaning here, though it's not a literal wooden translation, I think it captures the proper meaning. It says, women must not pretend to be men, and men must not pretend to be women. Yahweh your Elohim is disgusted with people who do that. For a man to try to look like and act like a female is an abomination. For a woman, to try to look like and act like a man is an abomination. Now that doesn't mean that a man can't wash dishes and a woman can't ride a tractor. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you have a purposeful attempt for a man who Yahweh made masculine to try to look and act feminine and when you have a woman who Yahweh made feminine to try to look and act masculine. You know it always looks awkward when you see people do that. When you see a man try to look and act feminine, it looks awkward. And vice versa, you know why it looks awkward? Because it is awkward. It's not natural. That's why when you see it, you do a double look. Like, whoa, what, what was that? I remember I was in court one time. I got thrown out of court one time because I wouldn't tuck in my tunic. And the bailiff said, 
Sunday you have business with the court today. And I was dressed just like I am basically right now. I wasn't slouchy. I was very nice, nicely dressed. Had on a long sleeve uh, tunic that reached about down to my knees where I'm at right now. And um, he made me leave the courtroom. And lo and behold, at court that day was a man who was dressed in a miniskirt with a wig with high heels. It was a transvestite. And that man, dressed like a woman, was allowed to stay in the court, go up to the front of the courtroom, discuss his court case, and then sit back down. I had to leave because I wouldn't tuck my tunic in. They said, you're supposed to tuck your shirt in. And we had some words out in the hallway. I was a lot more zealous back then. I probably could have handled it differently now. That man asked me what faith I was, and I told him the sacred name. He said, yeah, I heard of you guys. I've heard of you guys before. <laughs> My point is, is that that day when I saw that man walk up uh, before the bailiff approached me dressed like a woman, it looked awkward because it wasn't natural. It wasn't natural. The command here in Deuteronomy 22 and 5 I think is a general one and I think it forbids transvestites. I think it forbids transgenderism. People might say, well some of that may not have been back then in Hebrew culture but then again, maybe it all was back then. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. A lot of times we think the way that people think and act now is modern and new but there was a lot of things going on in worship to other gods back then that we sometimes don't realize because we don't study in depth. But there were men back then who purposely tried to be feminine and women who purposely tried to be masculine. Regardless though, regardless if all of this that's going on today, confusing of the genders and all of that, if it did not go on back then, the principle of Deuteronomy 22 and 5 still holds true and condemns what's taking place today. It's very similar to how that in Deuteronomy 22 verse 8, we learn that when a person builds a new house, they are to build a battlement around the roof so that nobody falls off the roof. We don't entertain people on our roofs anymore. But a lot of times we do entertain people on high decks. And so if we have a high deck, the principle of that command applies to the high deck. So even if transvestites and transgenders and all that didn't exist back at the time Deuteronomy 22 was written, the principle applies to that today because what's taking place today in society, and it's really becoming more and more rampant, is a blurring of the sexes, a blurring of the genders to where people want to act like a woman if they're a man and people want to act like a man if they're a woman. Um, Deuteronomy 22 and 5 says that it is an abomination before Yahweh. Uh, the Bible says, the Messiah says in, in Matthew 19 and I believe in Mark chapter 10, it's in Matthew and Mark. I might get the chapters wrong, but it's in Matthew and Mark. He says, in the beginning, God made them male and female. Ish and Isha. Woman came out of man, but when she came out, it wasn't another man. It was a woman. So, all of this talk about blurring the sexes and gender fluidity is an abomination in the sight of Yahweh. What we do not learn from Deuteronomy 22 and 5 is that pants are for men and not for women. We don't learn that from that text. Pants, even though it's not popular, are actually not an appropriate 